Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this episode is part of our World in 30 Minutes mini-series on the end of the world. This is the place where we talk about how the global order, which has defined the world for the last few decades, is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reinvented as something else. And I'm thrilled to be talking today with Martin Wolf, who is the Associate Editor and Chief Economics Commentator of the Financial Times, and author of many books on these uh, big topics, including Making Globalisation Work, and most recently, The Shifts and the Shocks, which looks at the lessons from the recent financial crisis. Um, Martin, thank you very much for making the time to talk to me and Anthony Dworkin, my colleague at ECFR. Maybe we can start with a, uh, a big question. You wrote at the, the time of Trump's inauguration that we could be on a long and painful journey to world disorder. Do you still feel that way today? Yes, very much so. I should say just a very tiny correction, not at all important, is the book was called Why Globalisation Works. Maybe it should have called, been called Making Globalisation Work. That's the next book, perhaps. <laughs> anyway, on the, the work, the move to world disorder, yes, I think it is, there's nothing I said in that piece, which actually I was quite proud of, to say that we were uh, moving into a period of disorder. Uh, the question I raised in that was, is the disorder of the kind that we saw in the 70s, which turned out to be a very important episode within what remained a predominantly Western liberal order, though its nature changed in important ways, or is the disorder we are now seeing more like that of the interwar period, which ended up with a fundamental breakdown and a complete transformation of the order. And I would remain of the view that it could be either of these, and I don't know which, but I suspect it's more the latter than the former. I regarded Trump as a symptom of this disorder because he's president of the United States, which was the, the order-creating power of the post-war system uh, and the whole order we've been living in, and because he rejected, and at least at the rhetorical level, continues to reject um, most of the fundamental planks of the liberal order as created and sustained by the United States. He hasn't yet, and I would stress yet, been quite as destructive as I feared, but these are very early days and there's a lot of disorder to come. So, as I said, I think he's a symptom of this profound shift in the United States, which is also in different ways reflected in Europe and uh, underlines, as I said then, this sense that we're moving into a transitional period of some kind. So if you had to lay out what you think the main threats to the order are, what would you say they, they are at the moment? I think there are, there are so many, but uh, if I look at it as a very big picture story, 
focus on the liberal order as an economic and political system. I put to one side the great challenges of climate change and sort of the global environment, even bigger things. And then I would say there are two very big things that have happened together, and they are related. The first is there is a, an extraordinarily large ongoing shift in global power going on, uh, that's self-evident, and which is really about uh, the rise of Asia. In fact, it's entirely about the rise of Asia, in my view, and predominantly in the current circumstances of China. And that means that this can no longer be if it is to survive in the way it used to be a Western-based order. And the second challenge, which, as I said, is related to the first, is that the West itself, uh, and I think this is true of almost all Western countries to some degree, and it is true of the US and the UK to a high degree, no longer believe in their own order. That is, they think, and this is, I think, most clear with Trump, that the system they created and promoted has not worked out for them as they hoped. Now, this is associated with, and I will put this as a sort of sub-clause in, in the sense of it hasn't worked out as we'd hoped, um, with very a sense of, and this is a reality, it's not just a sense, of profound divergence of outcomes within our societies, uh, which means that a significant proportion of our society thinks it's got work very badly for them. And that has, of course, affected the politics for everybody and therefore the fundamental commitment of our democratic societies to the order itself. And the other little sub-clause I put here is, of course, this has been without any question great, greatly exacerbated by the sense that mass migration is transforming who the we are and therefore what our states, our nation states actually mean and embody and that's further undermining the sense in core Western countries that this order is working well for them and that the combination I think of profound geopolitical transformation with a sense that uh, we no longer like the world we have created, it isn't working the way we want it to, whether we is not in any way unanimous, but very divided. Uh, those are the things that I would say, to me, from looking from an economic and political point of view, is the core of what's going on. Put like that, um, it suggests that the, the problems and the they, you know, the threats to the liberal order that you identify aren't simply a matter of, as it were, kind of policy mistakes or misguided leaders, but that this order as we've known it is now kind of fundamentally out of sync, both with the realities of global power and with the realities of what the public or a large part of the public in the advanced capitalist societies is willing to support. And that suggests that it's not simply a question of trying to restore the liberal order, but that maybe it does need to be, you know, rethought in some way. I think that is correct. If I were to 
say it very succinctly, I would say it's a combination of having been too successful and too unsuccessful at the same time. So the creation of the liberal order for the for people like me who believed in it, we thought we would be able to achieve two things. One, we thought this would create opportunities for development in the world and that this would reverse one of the dominant features of the world system over the previous two centuries, which was the emergence of quite staggering divergences in prosperity across the world. And I suppose I was one of the many idealists who thought that globalization would create a context within which the development process could be accelerated and these extraordinary inequalities could begin to be reversed. And I would say that in that regard, overall, though there were many failures, we would have to say this has been more successful than most of us thought was likely. The success of Asia, particularly China and India, uh, India is not as remarkably successful as China, still it's a, for somebody like me who worked on India in the 70s, it's an extraordinary vault fast, is from a development point of view, from the point of view of moving back towards a world in which far more opportunity is available to far more people, is clearly very beneficial. Uh, so that was a success, of course, necessarily, and I always understood this, uh, and I'll come to the implications of that, if we were successful in that, the balance of global power was bound to change. I've always felt, and maybe there's, in these heated times, people will regard this as treacherous, that a situation in which essentially 12% of the world's population, which is roughly the population of the developed world in the world, uh, continued to enjoy pretty well all the prosperity and all the power was neither sustainable nor morally acceptable. And in this regard, I would have to say that the liberal order has done exactly what I hoped. And I would be a complete falsehood to say that I am either shocked or surprised. I am actually rather delighted. Now, the second thing that I hoped, uh, on which I was clearly false, uh, clearly disappointed, is that the opportunities that were thereby created would also be available to a significant, there were opportunities would be created for the developed world at the same time. It would grow and prosper. And of course, many economies overall have done so. But two or three problems arose, emerged in our economies, which to a significant extent, I think we didn't expect. First, inequalities within our societies have evolved to a far greater degree than expected. I believe that globalization is a factor behind that, but not the dominant one. But this is a highly debated and debatable point. But nonetheless, it's clear that's happened. The second thing that has happened is that the underlying trend growth of our economies, the productivity dynamic of our economies, has slowed remarkably, particularly over the last 10, 15 years or so, I think the last 10. And I think nobody fully understands why. I think it's impossible to argue that that's credibly due to globalization, but, but it's clearly an incredibly important factor. And finally, 
we mismanaged the financial system grotesquely and the consequences of that were much more serious than I had expected, though even when I wrote Why Globalization Works, the financial sector was the thing I was most worried about. These three failures, which were clearly failures of policy and politics uh, of a profound order, of a very serious order, mean that our own societies, the societies of the developed world, which in any case were bound to be feel challenged by the rise of the emerging world, which I'd actually hoped for, but they have coped with this far less well than I would have hoped 10, 20 or so years ago. And that means that these countries are looking on the world as it's developed, not merely as one in which they're in relative decline, which is obvious, but as one in which for many, many people they're in absolute decline. They, they feel their best, their incomes are stagnating, and at worst they are facing with really very significant declines in prosperity. And then there are all the other transformations, social, cultural, and so forth, which I don't need to go into. So the result is the stresses on the old world have turned out to be not in the same order, but the sort of same sort of shock as the Western world inflicted upon China in the 19th century, and we don't like it. I mean, I suppose that you could say, in a way, to kind of crudely caricature what you're saying, that in the last, say, 15 or so years, the principal beneficiaries of this international order, sustained and supported by the US and to some degree also the rest of the West, has been the non-Western world, um, while the US itself um, and Europe has not really benefited. You know, and in a kind of rather crude way, isn't that somewhat similar to what Donald Trump is saying? I think the, if I were looking at the US, the U, they're all slightly different. I think the problem is, uh, it would be better stated, but of course it would be more subtle. In aggregate, the US has continued to become significantly more prosperous. And the, the break in that was the financial crisis. And the Chinese, I think, played a modest role in creating the background conditions for the financial crisis. That's a theme of my book. But the, at its core, it was a product of decision-making we made, as it were, on our own. Macroeconomic imbalances were important, but the Chinese were not part of the, uh, the core financial system and didn't create that crisis, which disrupted us 10 years ago. But I would say, if you stand back, you would have to say the US continues to grow. Um, it isn't growing as rapidly as we would like, but it's clearly got something mainly to do with what technology is doing and not, uh, I'm one of the people who happen to think that the great problem of our time is that technological innovation is extraordinarily weak, not extraordinarily strong. It's a very important subject. I don't think it's directly related to this, but I think the main mistake made was not in terms of policy that affected the aggregate growth of the developed world. And I certainly don't think if we'd been less globalized, we would have grown much faster. I see no reason why that should be the case. But the distribution of the gains, uh, particularly in the US, dramatically more so in the US than elsewhere, has been extremely perverse. So the 
the outcome has been, though in aggregate the U.S. has got better off, nearly all or a huge proportion of the incremental gains have gone to a very small proportion of the population. And that rising inequality is the result of the way we've responded to globalization rather than globalization itself. And even in this regard, actually, the UK has done much, much better than the US. Unlike the U US, uh, after the big rise in inequality in the 80s, which we can discuss, actually inequality in the UK, as far as we can see, has remained reasonably constant. It is true that underlying trend growth in the UK has clearly slowed dramatically in the last decade. Nobody, I think, fully understands it. But I don't think we can easily argue, I don't see any evidence for it, that globalization has been the main reason. So what I would say is we have some very, very large problems in the developed world. Managing globalization is one of them. But the, the problems have mostly lain elsewhere. What Donald Trump has done, and I understand fully why he's done it, and I fully understand why it's successful, is to blame all these predominantly domestically created and domestically decided problems on foreigners. Um, blaming foreigners, immigrants, rather than yourselves, is a well-established political game. It's a very successful political game, of course, and it has, in this context, very dangerous potential consequences. And of course, we saw, in my view, a not dissimilar process at work in the Brexit a referendum in the UK. So the Brexit referendum is obviously one very real-world consequence. If Britain does leave the EU, that will have quite a big impact on free trade and the free movement of citizens and capital and other parts of globalisation. What do you think the global dangers and consequences are at the moment? Because you, you, you've talked a lot about the causes for what's going to happen that there could be a big shift in rhetoric and different people being in power in different countries and a different kind of feel to national politics? Or do you think we're going to see major systemic changes as a result of, of these shifts in, uh, in power and in the political mood? One of the things I've learned, perhaps uh, it's a ludicrous thing to say at my age, uh, is that it is astonishing how little I understand and how bad I am at foreseeing what's going to happen. So I, I make absolutely no firm predictions. This is the way I think about it, though. It seems to me obvious from the discussion we've already had that changes in the world and at home that affect the developed countries, so let's focus on these, have made a political and social order fragile. It's breakable. Things can happen that would not have been expected some years ago. I've just, I'm, I'm actually writing something new, and I, I went back to my, my previous book, which was finished in 2013, I think, or maybe early 2014, and uh, the last chapter was headed, and probably you will get the reference, the fire next time. 
And the thesis was we'd made such a terrible mess of our affairs that if anything like this were to happen again, we will be in the most desperate political trouble. And my feeling now is that was a mistake. What it should have said is the fire this time. We hadn't got through the post-crisis period. We just, I just thought we had. We, as a result of the longer-term processes I described and the consequences of the crisis, we are living in uh, relatively fragile political orders. And my lesson from history is that when that happens, uh, the range of possible outcomes is much wider and you can get there with much bigger lurches than you would ever get. And the election of Donald Trump is obviously one such example. A year before he was elected, I don't think I knew anybody who imagined that this was possible. And then it happened, and we're then in a different world in terms of economic policy of the United States, uh, attitudes in the United States to, to NATO, the West, the WTO, the IMF, everything. Similarly, while we all realize that might be a referendum on the EU, I suppose most people probably thought in the end it would be okay. Uh, uh, I wasn't so confident, but I thought it would be okay. So what I think I've learned is it's very fragile. In a time of fragility, if the I didn't think that economics is part of that, and the way economics works, I tend to feel, is that it makes cultural and other stresses, and it's easy to see what the cultural and other stresses are, bearing particularly on the people at the, sort of towards the you know the middle and bottom of our societies in income terms. That the it makes the uh, the cultural stresses less easy to bear. It turns the way I put this is when the economy doesn't grow, politics becomes zero-sum. And in zero-sum politics, or negative-sum politics, identity starts rearing its head. You start asking yourself, why are these people doing better than we are? And if they're foreign in some way, then you really start hating them. The violence of that comes out. So what could happen? We could have, and I'm not predicting them, but an extreme. We can have Britain leaving the EU, and we can have other countries leaving the EU. Support for the EU in very important countries is weaker now, I think, than it has ever been before. And I'm thinking of important countries like Italy or France. Marine Le Pen won 35% of the vote last time. What happens if, or I would say when, Macron fails? Uh, in Italy, about half the voters are now supporting politicians who are essentially hostile to the EU and the euro. This is Italy, which I used to think of as the most Europhile of all the major European countries. Um, Britain, the possibilities in Britain are so many and various, but obviously if we did have an election of Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, we would be in a different economic and political world. How that will work, I have no idea, but it sure will be something radically different. Will Britain stay in NATO in those circumstances? What would its policies be? And then finally, the US. I think the old establishments of the Republican and Democratic side are completely busted flushes. They cannot be resurrected. Uh, so I don't believe there is any reason to suppose that what will replace Trump will be some, if it's not himself, will be something more reasonable, more 
ill tune with the existing order. It could, could be somebody from the left or the right who is much more serious and radical and much less of a showboat than Mr. Trump. The United States, I believe, is probably moving into a period of increasing political stress because I don't see how the economy is going to be transformed. So what I would say is we're in a period of extreme fragility, uh, not as extreme as, say, 1928, but nonetheless extreme. And in this situation, I wouldn't rule out any possibility. That's a pretty worrying set of predictions or possibilities you're laying out there. Um, what specifically do you think you could try to do to um, reverse these trends or to, to bolster the probabilities of a kind of some degree of international order being restored or preserved? This is exactly what I'm trying to write about in my next book and I haven't got to this point. Let me give you the way I approach these things with full understanding of how wrong I could turn out to be. In this respect, I am, as it were, profoundly, quote unquote, Keynesian. And what I mean by that is that in the immense debates of the 1930s about what should be done from an economic policy point of view, people like Keynes and Beveridge and their equivalents in the United States basically decided that the way to fix their problems was first, obviously, to sustain in the British case and in other cases, restore fundamental liberal democratic values, because I remain absolutely convinced, and that is the core of what I'm narrating, that these are the best systems we have, and to find as best we can intelligent technocratic solutions which worked with the underlying objective of creating a liberal and democratic society and opening carefully and aggressively to the world solutions which would ensure that the great majority of the people would share in the benefits of a dynamic economy. That, I think, is the core of it, which meant full employment, of course, but also policies oriented towards growth and sharing out the growth. And nowadays, of course, we would clearly add in in the way they wouldn't have managing the environmental effects of all this. And of course, we would also include making, uh, opening the management of the order as fully as we possibly can to the emerging powers so they feel engaged and committed to it and don't feel obliged to create their own order uh, because I don't think the world can cope with two competing orders, a Western and a Chinese one. I think this will be a disaster. What were the technocratic solutions consist of? Um, I can't go into all the details, but I think it is inescapable to my mind that we, and I've written about this now for 12 or 13 years, we do have to look at immigration as a political and economic issue. We can't pretend it's not an issue because it obviously is. We have to look at, and inescapably, about income and wealth distribution, which means taxing capital and particularly corporate income 
successfully and effectively worldwide. It means doing some politically quite difficult and unpopular things, which includes particularly taxing the gains from land price appreciation for the benefits of the younger generation, uh, dealing with the housing challenge that a country like this faces. Everybody, every country has a slightly different one. And then, of course, it means doing policies to the extent we can, and there are lots of areas we don't know about, which are likely to accelerate economic growth. And that includes raising investment rates, ensuring that we collectively in the West invest hugely in education, research, scientific research, research in companies, uh, infrastructure, um, the use of knowledge and the development of knowledge which, on which our future will ultimately depend. These are a range of essentially technocratic solutions to our problems. I do think that if we try to close our economies up in this situation, we will, uh, I'm absolutely convinced, make all this worse in aggregate, even if uh, we are not going to restore the industrial jobs of old. They're gone. They will never come back. We cannot succeed through a politics and a policy of nostalgia. But I think we can be and must be substantially more radical than we've been willing to be in the last decade in rethinking the structure of economic policy and social policy for what is emerging as a very different world. Thank you. We're, we're running out of time, but maybe I could just ask you one brief um, question about what you just said, because the domestic challenges are very clear, but you also talked about enlarging the management of the order to include emerging economies and powers like China. It's quite obvious that it will be difficult to have an order if they're not included in it. But will it still be liberal if China is allowed to reshape these institutions and norms? That's a very profound question. Perhaps we can put it round in a slightly different way and then I'll get to the end to the conclusion. China is trying to do something which I believe, and it's a genuine conviction, it's not just a hope, isn't possible. Uh, and so I do think, and I've written quite a bit about this, that China faces its own crisis. What do I mean by this? China is trying to develop further its market-based liberal economy. Of course, there's lots of state intervention, we know all this, but in essence, the Chinese have continued to promote a market-based, liberal, competitive, open economy. At the same time, China is clearly committed under its present leadership to a substantial rollback of such political liberalization as there was under uh, Zhang Jimin and Hu Jintao, and to re-establish a strongly centralized communist party state. Obviously, the question from our point of view has to be, is in the medium to long run, can China pull this combination off? Is that a doable thing? I genuinely believe that the two approaches cannot be combined 
in the medium to long run, in which case China will itself face a huge challenge about which direction it will go. And this is not about whether it will become a Western liberal democracy. I'm sure it's not going to become a Western liberal democracy. But it's, it is about whether it will, can sustain the sort of top-down political system that Xi Jinping wants to sustain and strengthen. The sort of China that now emerges will be the partner we're going to have. And if it's a relatively liberalizing China, both economically and slowly politically, then it's one thing. If it's a top-down dictatorship with a market economy, we can probably agree with them on a fair amount of process liberalism in the economic system. And we can probably agree with them that there will be some areas, notably capital markets, and freedom of movement of people, for that matter, where the Chinese just won't be part of the world system. They're going to be, remain largely outside it. But I think we could still make progress on process liberalism in trade, particularly intellectual property to some degree. And I think we can still make progress on big collective action issues like climate change. But, but we can't... Um, I think in that situation go beyond that. Of course, if China moves in a more liberalizing direction, then it gets much easier. So the real question to my mind is what sort of China are we going to have? And on that basis, what sort of process agreements and some more substantial agreements can we reach with them? It sure isn't going to be easy. It was much easier when the West ran the world. But as, as I've already indicated, I never thought this was a world we could sustain indefinitely. So we better get used to the idea that we're going to move beyond it. Thank you very much. It's been absolutely fascinating. There are two quick questions that we ask all of the guests. So maybe we can end with, with those. The first is just to complete the sentence. The liberal order is dot, dot, dot. Is in trouble, but it's the best thing we have. <laughs> and the final thing is for people who have enjoyed this conversation but want to go deeper on it, what should they read? Obviously, at the top of the reading list, and we'll put links to all these on, on our website, there's your column and the many articles that you've written about lots of different ang angles of this and, and the books that you've written as well, and we'll put those on the, on the website as well. But what are the other things that would be helpful for people who want to get under the surface and, and take these discussions to a deeper level? There are so many different thing, books I've been reading recently. I think Stephen King's new book, Brave New World, is quite helpful. I think probably the best critique of contemporary liberal capitalism is by a man called, I think it's Walter Streich. I think it's called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. And finally, uh, if you want to be really depressed, there's a book by a man called Walter Scheidel. It's called The Great Leveler, and it's about the history of inequality over the millennia. And it reaches, I'm afraid, a very pessimistic conclusion of what we can do about inequality. Great. Thank you very much, Martin. It was wonderful talking to you. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do tell people about it through social media and even more importantly write a review of the podcast on itunes mm -hmm.